All right, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. I'm Katie Halper. And uh, wow, what a week. This is, uh, this is gonna be a difficult show, I predict. What do you think? I think so. It's gonna be uh, hard to talk with the, with the levity that we, le- humor levity that we usually have. Right, um, we, don't, we don't know their levity is actually like an allowed uh, emotional thing at the moment, so. Right, what we're trying to do for this episode is we have, um, we're going to be talking about the protests, the rebellion, um, I've heard it referred to those two ways. Um, of course, I've heard it referred to as riots, but I think protest and rebellion are better terms for it. Um, our guests are going to be talking about that. We'll be talking about that with our guests. It'll also and be we have two of them today. Yeah. We have two of them today. Yeah, it'll also be, and we might as well say who they are: Marianne right. Williamson right. and uh, right. historian uh, Ger- Dr. Gerald Horn, and they're both really amazing in different ways. Um, there's more overlap than one would expect. Anyway, we're talking about the protests with them and we're going to be bringing it up in our Democrats suck and Republicans suck. But we also thought that we would bring in some levity in the isn't that terrible and isn't that weird. In terms of talking about the the protest, rebellion, whatever we want to call it, um, for me, part of this is complicated by the fact that I, I really dislike talking about things like this unless I'm seeing with my own eyes what's going on. Um, you know, I, I've covered a million protests, nothing on this scale, I don't think. But, uh, you know, I've learned over the years that uh, media reports are tend to be wildly off base when they talk about things that happen. Uh, even video can be extremely deceptive. Um, so it's it makes it very, very difficult to parse what's going on. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on in the media that is that is uh, disturbing in its own right right now, which makes it really really difficult to to decide upon the truth of certain things. So we're, we're just gonna have to kind of talk around a few things, uh, okay, and yeah. we, we ask we ask your, your forgiveness, or at least I yeah, do. I mean, some, ahead of time. some things. And uh, um, you should ask me too for forgiveness. <laughs> okay, um, I, I asked ask Katie for I mean, forgiveness. Yeah. What's also complicated is that there are two kind of dueling narratives, which is not dueling narratives. They're kind of adjacent, but extremely different. And they can both be happening at once. And the thing is, anyone who knows about protests knows that they're going to be some agent provocateur, agent provocateur, as uh, Aaron Maté says. Um, But then there's this very problematic narrative of out, uh, outside agitators. Well, that's an uh, old trope that's been that, that yes. you, you, you can go back and see, and you know, go, dating back to Watts and New York, nineteen sixty four. Yeah, totally. Whatever, yeah, whatever it is, they, it's yeah. always eighty five percent of the people there outside. That's yeah, it's and a, it's not. It was the mayor of Minneapolis, I believe, who said like the high number of the people arrested were outsiders, but that turned out not to be true. But yeah, that's an old trope. Reminds me of that photo of um, Martin Luther King, where it's like king with a bunch of communists you know there's this whole like a lot of in the civil rights era organizers who came from north for went south to register voters or you know freedom riders uh, were often portrayed as uh outside agitators um of course they were supporting the movements that were already going on but yeah it's a really othering narrative and uh right but that's 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 also not to say that some certain things uh, aren't completely untrue to either so it's just very, yeah. it's a very complicated picture, but we'll, we'll do our best, right? We'll, we'll, we'll plow yeah. ahead and, and we'll, we'll try to 
we, we got some, we got great guests. We got, yeah. uh, we'll just punt uh, it all to them, make them say exactly, the exactly. Kind of and, and, yeah. and we'll, we'll, and we'll, we'll just we'll, be like, Hmm, okay. Yeah, Interesting. Right. Right. Fascinating. The, the, the part of the picture that we feel clear about, we'll talk about, but then the rest of it, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll just cop out. So, all right, well, I guess we should start with the, the four food groups. Uh, you have yeah. Democrats suck. You're up first, I think. Right. So, yes, I do. Yes. So there are a couple things um, I want to talk about. One is speaking of outside agitators, um, something that Susan Rice said. Former national security advisor. Right. Under Obama. She was, she was the Michael Flynn of the Obama administration. Okay. Right. So former national security advisor for the Obama administration, Susan Rice, here we go. Who have come to try to hijack those protests and turn them into something very different. Uh, and they are probably also, I would bet based on my experience, I'm not reading the intelligence uh, today uh, or these days, but based on my experience, this is right out of the Russian playbook as well. But we can't allow the extremists, the foreign actors, to distract from the real problems we have in this country that are long-standing, centuries old, and need to be addressed responsibly by new leadership. You're, you're absolutely right on the uh, foreign interference, because we know for decades, the Russians, uh, when it was the Soviet Union, the communists, they've uh, often, often tied, tried to embarrass the United States by promoting the, the racial divide in our country. But what you're suggesting, Ambassador, is that they're still trying to do that. Is that what you're saying? Oh, we see it all the time. We've seen it for years and, and frankly, every day on social media where they take uh, any divisive, painful issue, whether it's immigration, whether it's gay rights, whether it's gun violence and always racism, and they play on both sides. Their aim is not simply to embarrass the United States, Wolf. Their aim is to divide us, to cause us to come into combat with each other. Awesome. I mean, so much to unpack there. First of all, I like that she's like, I'm not looking at the intelligence, but I'm just going to wing it. Right. Um, I mean, this narrative was really pushed, obviously, has been pushed the whole time. We kind of made fun of it with Aaron Mate, uh, you know, the, uh, the claims that a lot of ads that came out after the election were somehow responsible for um, Trump's win or, you know, the reach out to Jesus and we'll beat it together. Don't yeah, masturbate. You can't yeah, handle yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the race stuff, like the playing up the racism stuff, I kind of thought that in the context of undeniably justifiable and justified outrage and protest over yet another murder of an unarmed black man by the police, I thought people would put that on hold. You know what I mean? <laughs> I thought it would be too problematic to dismiss genuine like outrage and trauma as Russian propaganda. But I'm so happy because it gives me such a great Democrat suck. I mean, I'm being sarcastic. I'm so disturbed by this. And yes, by the way, the Soviet Union, of course, played on the racism of the United States to undermine the U.S. criticism of their human rights violations and stuff. They would have done that as it just was a very great, convenient tool. Of course, they were going to when I say play on it, I mean, like, talk about it, write about it. Um, they didn't have to send a bunch of like Soviet spies here to to agitate or pretend right. to be civil rights people. I mean, yeah, they, they talked about it. I mean, I, I actually have uh, posters in my collection. I have like a collection of Soviet realist posters that shows like the race problem in the, in the South and in America in the sixties. 
that this was going on while the Soviets were doing things like resettling entire ethnic minorities sure, from one, course, one right. part of the country to the other. So it was, it was, right. it was absurd on its face. But you're right. Yeah, they, they didn't have to. Yeah, it's, a, it's not like they came in, started like started racism or like pointed it out to Americans who didn't realize it. I mean, it's so offensive. It's so offensive. It's like it's not about the lynching. It's not about the Jim Crow laws. It's not about slavery. It's about Russian interference and meddling. Um, I can't believe people are saying that now. And what is this American problem, by the way? I mean, are Soviet are Russians saying that it's not about race? I mean, to the extent that Russians are talking about this, in, in other words, she makes it seem like we have to focus on the on this problem. Who's who's pretending it's something else? Like, what are people saying? No one's saying it's not racism. It's not like right. you have a bunch of people coming in and saying, like, the problem is Western democracy. And that's why you have to accept what I mean. And Putin is what he's not even a con. I mean, I don't even know what it would be. It's preposterous. Yeah, it's preposterous. And if let's say Russians are are, hot, you know, amplifying the calls to do certain things here, it's not like they're they're not leading anything. I mean, the yeah, worst it's, thing it's not like there's a huge, is- huge kumbaya movement going on in, yeah. uh, in, in the American news media. Like, you know, they're, they're, they'd have to get the Russians would have to get in line behind basically everybody in America right now who's who's aiming to, you know, stir up all these divisions. So it, it, it's a it's a preposterous criticism, that I think, that minimizes the actual problems that we have in yeah. this country. And scapegoats so we can avoid it yeah exactly. as much as she's claiming that we need she doesn't say a single thing also about what we need to do like if she look i'm i think we need a truth and reconciliation commission i do right. but that's not what she's talking about she's not like offering a way to solve it that is undermined by foreign intervention i mean it's just such a, an obvious like deflection and dodge probably partly because she knows that the administration she was part of while totally better than Trump on this stuff, but didn't, you know, didn't do enough on this. Right. You know, right. remember Obama called. I'm not comparing Obama's response to Trump's response at all, but he did call protesters in um, Baltimore, the people protesting over Freddie Gay, Freddie Gray. He called them thugs. He, you know, helped crush Occupy. Um, so, you know, it's one of the many reasons I'm sure that that race is deflecting. Yeah, two, two quick things on this for me. Uh, yeah. First of all, I, lo- I love Wolf Blitzer saying, I agree with you on the foreign. Like, uh, that, that felt like a Trumpian term, the foreign, right? Yeah, like, I think we're Does all, we're all in agreement the about foreign? The, the foreign. Yeah. That's what he said. He didn't say uh, yeah. the foreign influence. He yeah, something like I mean, he was going to say something else, but he just stopped there, which it's, so it's, it sounded <laughs> right. really funny. Second, also, yeah. Susan Rice has, has become an increasingly infamous character in this whole drama. Um, you know, with, with her actions were some of the first breadcrumbs that were kind of leading to uh, leading people to believe that something not so hot had happened in, in uh, December and January uh, of 2016, 2017, um, as the Obama administration was leaving office. You know, she wrote a, a memo to herself on, on January 20th. Um, 15 days after a meeting that a uh, briefing that they'd had with Obama and some other officials about the Flynn situation. And she basically wrote a memo saying that Obama in that meeting had instructed everyone to go by the book, but it was like memorializing something that had happened right. a long time ago, which was totally a hint that something had not so uh, clear had gone on in that meeting. Yeah. L- later on, right. she, she, she went on television and, and denied absolutely that uh, there was FISA surveillance going on. 
Um, you know, she, she said initially, she was one of the people who was quoted during this time when um, there were first suspicions that there was surveillance of some of these figures using, using FISA. Uh, she said like, yeah, I know nothing about this. I was surprised to see reports, uh, you know, on that count today. And we now know from all the stuff that's been declassified that she was lying about all that stuff. So she has, and no one's asked her about this, right? Uh, I mean, Wolf Blitzer. Not that, that I've seen anyway. Yeah. So she's, she's an interesting character. She's always kind of pushed this um, pretty hard. Uh, and it's, but you're right. It's conspicuous that they would do it in the middle of this unbelievable situation. You, you would have thought that, you know, they would have enough shame to not go there now. Yeah. Uh, but they, they did. So it was it was yeah. incredible. That's funny. She was probably like anticipating some legal like discovery and she right. had to turn over some files. Right. So she wrote that memo to herself. Huge, huge red flag. Uh, you know, I'm going to send a memo red to myself. Red flag. About it. Red yeah. flag. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Fashion. Yeah, Krasny flag. Yeah. You're going to send a memo to yourself for, for a meeting that you had two, two weeks ago or 15 days ago. Like what I think anybody looking at that would, would scratch their heads and wonder what actually happened at that meeting. So it's too bad. Uh, people don't keep diaries anymore. Cause that would make for better writing. Dear mm-hmm. diary today or two weeks ago, president Obama encouraged us all to follow rule of law. Right. I also called my aunt. She's doing well. I have a crush (laughs) on Bobby. I hope he likes me. All right, for Republicans suck, uh, two news stories that were just sort of classic Trump things, and we'll just talk about what those are first. First, he calls up the brother of George Floyd, Philanese Floyd. And Trump says that, you know, when he, when he, his description of the, the call is that he just expressed his sorrow uh, and that, that it was a horrible thing to witness and it looked like there was no excuse for Floyd's death. Then they interview the brother who goes on television and says, the guy didn't even give me an opportunity to speak. I was hard. I was trying to talk to him, but he just kept like pushing me off. Like, I don't want to hear what you're talking about. So there's that, like, and then there's the, the, call where he has uh, where he's speaking to a bunch of governors and dan if we could listen to a little bit of this this conference call that he has where he talks about how we have to dominate uh in, in order to to show how strong we are in the state of minnesota they were uh, olympics stuff all over the world they took over the police department the police were running down the street sirens blazing the rest of them running it was on camera and then they wiped out, you probably have to build a new one, but I've never seen anything like it, and, and the whole world was laughing. Two days, three days later, I spoke to the governor, the governor is, I think, by the quality, the next one guy. And all of a sudden, and I said, you got to use the National Guard to take numbers. They did it first, then they did. And I'll tell you that, I don't know what it was, it was governor, it was the third night, fourth night. Those guys walked through that stuff like it was butter. They walked right through, and you haven't had any problems since. I mean, they don't. They're not going to go there. Now they'll go to some other place. But once you called out that you dominated, you took the worst place, and you made it. They didn't even cover it last night because there was so little action. So ever since Trump became a big national phenomenon, like, I... I think a lot of people, and I, I've had to cover him a lot, and I think people have misinterpreted a lot of what I said about Donald Trump. I always thought that Trump was more of a symptom than a cause of a lot of America's problems. I think 
when you when we talk about what happened in 2015 and 2016, he was. I always thought the the story there was more like the Jerzy Kaczynski novel being there. He he was a he was kind of this moronic figure who who just happened to be in exactly the wrong place at exactly the right time, and all these other forces around him propelled this person who was not even really trying to win. Actually, he, he was out there to. Right for some other completely ridiculous reason. And America just wouldn't let this guy lose because it was such an absurd situation with all these long developing trends of hatred and everything that were going on in the country. And then he gets into office and immediately spends years being accused of something that he's not, which is a, you know, a Russian agent. And I, I thought that, uh, oddly enough, propelled him forward as well and, and gave him um, more power than he would have had otherwise. And people have always, people have taken that as being a defense of this guy. And that's not what I believe at all. I, I think he's a ridiculous, shallow, right. narcissistic lunatic uh, who just happens not to be um, as guilty uh, of certain things as some people right. have accused him of being. And I, and I think that if we, I've always thought that if people looked more honestly at why he won and why why his message resonates that that it would it would be more healing and we'd, we'd understand better how to oppose and correct some of those problems but in this particular circumstance it, it, this is on trump this is exactly he he is the president now this is it's right. he 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 has that power and in, in a situation like we're in now where, where there are dual massive emergencies going on we're in a pandemic and this the country is completely uh, falling apart in ways we haven't seen since the 60s. Um, the the presidency, the power of the presidency completely demands someone who recognizes uh, the authority that they have just to fix things by speaking. And this is a person who is just completely incapable of understanding some, some basic um, human instincts. You're on the phone with the brother of the victim that, you know, in this incident that has got the whole world looking at you and you don't listen, like that's the first thing you have to do. And, the, and this whole idea that, that he's, he's so Wait, insecure. you're saying Trump isn't, Trump isn't good at active listening? He's able to hear things and, and, and strategize Right. And he, he's, he's cunning in that respect. But in, in basic human interaction, no, this course, comes yeah. out all the time. This is a person who just, he's so insecure, he can't let other people talk. Right. Uh, and, and with the, the whole dominating thing, again, he sees he, he, everything to him is interpreted through the lens of, well, what does this mean for me, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, and because he sees all these protests as, as being against him, the only response that, that makes sense to him is, is taking out the National Guard and right. dominating them. And, and that uh, not understanding that, that uh, you know, some kind of message of, you know, calling for a, something like what you propose, a National Truth and Reconciliation right. Commission, right? Recognizing that the country needs even a superficial, even an insincere. Right, even for optics. Right, exactly, yeah. Right, even an insincere yeah. message uh, calling for some kind of healing or, or dialogue or something along those lines. He's incapable of doing it. And as a result, right. this, I mean, this is where we're, we're in civil war right now. And, and we, we might not be. Uh, you know, the country's starved for leadership. People would, yeah. they, would, they, would, they would go flock to anyone who exhibited even the slightest bit of it, and he's not capable of it. And, and for all the 
the other things that he's not been guilty of in the past, yeah. he's definitely guilty of this. And I, I, yeah. I, I just I, I can't be more upset about it. It's, it's, I mean, it's, this is one of the cases where rhetoric really does matter. Like rhetoric, language, all that stuff. It's, I mean, often I think you and I are frustrated with how much people folk on his, focus on his tweets and not his policy. But this is a case where language really does have a lot of importance. I mean, it's crucial. Um, and his what he's calling for is also atrocious. Um, yes. But yeah, and just to remind people that when I, I think like when you and I talk about um, the Russia stuff with Trump, the, the, the what which people constantly invoke, that's not because we're seeking to exonerate him. It's actually because, as you said, if we want to defeat Trump and Trumpism, we need to look at what really happened. And the whole, you know, the Russia stuff actually undermines legitimate resistance. And also the irony is that he's not even good at this. Like we're not the we're not the laughing stock. People aren't laughing at, at well, they're protests. They're horrified by. But but the thing that they're horrified by is what Trump is doing. You know, like that. The people who are critical of the United States, like, you know, that's well, they're horrified they, by a lot of things. They're horrified sure. by the police violence, which is not Trump. His response to it is something different. Yeah, the, but I mean, it's not Trump, but he definitely, you know, and I don't want to glorify like what was done under Obama about police violence, but basically everything he's saying here is the message he usually sends out. And that definitely emboldens. Yes, but I mean, I think, I, I, and we'll, we'll talk about this later too, but I, I, that's a long developing tragedy course, in this country right. that that has been yeah. you know pretty explicitly the fault of, of basically every kind of elected official in right. this country uh you know at, at at every level you know state uh you know municipal and to a lesser extent the federal government but people are horrified by a lot of things in america trump is clearly a major part of it um, right but they're they're also we people look to the, the united states because we're the, the most powerful country in the world they look to us and if we're in a state of complete disrepair and dysfunction that doesn't bode well for the rest of the countries in the world. So they're worried on that level too. Um, right. And so his inability to hold stuff together uh, right. is, is terrifying to people because yeah. that, that, that'll have implications for, for as many things as, as um, you know, for, for Trump is, is, has become a bo bogeyman to so many people for so many different reasons. And some of them make sense and some of them don't. And some of it is just convenient because he's so, he's so ridiculous and, and right. such, so comically villainous in a lot of ways. But in this particular incident, incidents, he, he needed to step up and, yeah. and, and not be himself and, and he couldn't right. do it. You know, it's, so. I mean, it's inconceivable. I can't even imagine him doing it except for some weird, like, opportunistic cynical way i'm not sure what that would look like but he's pretty yeah i thought maybe he would do something like that uh what do we, what do we have for uh for isn't that so for isn't that weird we have um a challenge an offer from a from a brewery that a virginia brewery announced it's seeking a chief hiking officer who would be paid twenty thousand dollars to spend five to seven months hiking the appalachian trail and drinking beer Devil's Backbone Brewing Company said it's accepting applications from people who love hiking and beer. The winning applicant will be granted the chief hiking officer title and will be flown out to trailhead in 2021 for a 2,200-mile hike. 
They'd have equipment from the brewery. They'd be treated to some big old beer parties along the way. So I don't like beer and I don't like hiking. And I don't understand. I don't understand why people either hike or camp unless they're fleeing like a pogrom or some kind of armed militia or the law. Like, I don't get why that's ever a choice. It's so weird to me. Hiking, I kind of get, but camping out, why? Why would you do that? Society has uh, developed so we don't have to do that. <laughs> civilization re- has developed so we don't have to do that. The reason that we don't have civilization is so, we do, is so that we don't have to do camping? The reason we do have civilization. The re- reason we have civilization yeah. is so we don't yeah. have to camp. Yeah. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, an, that's a good argument. I, I, I like the idea of camping. Have you done it? I have. Yeah. Not recently, though. Yeah. Did you like so, it? I did. Yes, I did a lot of camping when I was when I was younger. I did. I even did hiking when I was younger. I guess so. Yeah. But, yeah I'm uh, disappointed in you, Matt. Yeah. I thought you. I mean, I made an assumption based on the fact that you said you didn't like hiking, but you're saying you don't hike. You're not saying you don't. I like don't it. hike. No, I'm no, I'm, I'm an out of shape middle aged male who who sits at home. Well, yeah. a great way, you know, a great way to get in shape is. Hiking fact, while drinking yeah, beer. Yeah. Well, no, or just the hiking part. We should, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take on this challenge. I don't yeah, drink beer. Right. I drink wine. So maybe I can find a wine sponsor or a hard liquor sponsor, or I could consider hiking without um, inebriation. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, well, but, I, I like, uh, I like the spirit of the, of the, of the challenge. So it's, it's the interesting. Spirits. The spirits. It's amazing how it just flows out of you. I can't help it. It's a little weird, right? I, I chose this for, isn't that weird? Because I kind of think it's a dangerous combination. Drinking and hiking? Yeah. Yes, I can, there, there are lots of times in hiking when being drunk is not would not be a positive, I would say. Right, when alcohol is not your friend, yeah. So yes, balance is probably more, more important. Right, than, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of things, there's a lot of places on the Appalachian Trail where one would not want to be drunk right. while hiking necessarily yeah it seems like a lawsuit waiting to happen isn't that terrible um escaped disease bearing monkeys is basically the the capsule here uh coronavirus uh colon this is on sky news coronavirus colon monkeys escape with covid19 samples after attacking lab assistant and this is uh, something that happened in India. The story, new story reads as follows. A gang of monkeys attacked a laboratory assistant and escaped with a batch of coronavirus blood test samples. It has been reported. The bizarre incident saw a troop of primates launch their assault near Meerut Medical College in Delhi, India. According to local media, the animals then snatched COVID-19 blood samples that had been taken from three patients and fled. Uh, one of the monkeys was later spotted in a tree chewing one of the sample collection kits. So on top of everything else that's happening in the world, that's terrible. And it's just really hard to find the upside anywhere. Um, we got monkeys escaped with viral samples running loose somewhere. And this, of course, and the story talks about this, brings with it the possibility that the that this will create a mutated uh, simian strain of the virus that will then reinfect the population in some worse and even more horrible way. And they're running loose somewhere. Nobody, they haven't caught them yet. So um, awesome. Yep. So we have a stone moment as usual coming from Joe Biden. Joe Biden was speaking to a group of African-American community leaders at Bethel AME church in Wilmington, Delaware. And he um, mostly listened apparently. And then at the end, he had this interesting thing to say. And the idea that instead of standing there and teaching a cop who's an unarmed person coming at him with a knife or something, shooting him in the leg instead of in the heart, 
is a very different thing. There's a lot of different things that can change. So um, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, one thing is that this is probably not the best advice to give. First of all, I mean, just on a technical level, you can, you know, if you hit the femoral artery, the person's going to bleed out and die. So it's right. not non-lethal. Second of all, it's not easy to necessarily aim for a leg. I mean, the funny thing is I used to, th when I was a little kid, I thought this idea, like mm. not as an adult running for president, not as like a former <laughs> vice president and former senator. Like I remember being like, why don't they do that? And the point is, of course, that you don't want police to be like less lethal in their shooting. You want them to not shoot. Um, right. I mean, that's that's what they, the the reason they teach police not to use their weapons unless they're planning to kill somebody is because they theoretically the idea is to discourage the use of weapons entirely. Unless, right. unless it's a situation when where one absolutely has to use a weapon is the idea. Right. Not that, um, that they follow it, but that's the idea. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And as people uh, noted, there are some interesting um, parallels. So um, the dialectic daughter, uh, Priya V. Prakabar tweeted, Biden is literally taking a tactic out of the playbook of the Israeli Defense Forces by advocating for cops to shoot protesters in the leg rather than the heart, intentionally maiming protesters to debilitate them without having the liability of lethal shootings on your hands. So that's like to the extent that it would even does work in terms of like just maiming and not killing. And then the other interesting thing is from radical Bernie interim POTUS is Trump said on migrants, shoot them in the leg. A new report claims that Donald Trump suggested that migrants be shot for throwing rocks and trying to cross the U.S. border. Now, again, this is not quite the same as saying that, but it's kind of adjacent. He's not calling on cops to do that per se, he's not outright encouraging it, but he's certainly offering it as an alternative. I think he's just meandering out loud. Uh, and if you see his, even his ads lately, his want. Yeah. yeah, he, he can't, he can't even get through a scripted sentence without, without going someplace that he wasn't supposed to go or, or starting to say one thing that he didn't mean to say. And I'm really annoyed at where's Bernie right now. Like, is he not coming out publicly because he doesn't want to be accused of undermining Joe Biden? I don't know. Yeah, probably. Right. Because I mean, this is really a time that he could be effective. Yeah. Yeah. At channeling people's anger, like at. Yeah, I, I think he really needs to get over whatever personal issues he has with Biden, like affection and also whatever fear he has of being blamed for um, Trump's victory last time, because no one's going to change their opinion on that. So, there's a somebody has to step up and have and have some kind of message that make that people want to actually listen to. And I'm not hearing it from anybody. He would be a good choice, but there's nobody there. Anyway, we have, we have Biden who's suggesting, you know, let's let's aim for another part of the body to to uh, solve the police violence problem. That's going to be, that, that's, that's a great message from the, that is, that's actually the, the per, that should be the, the slogan or the motto of the entire democratic party shooting you in the leg, not the heart. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sh shooting, shooting you in the leg, not the heart, not the face, something like that. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Um, it is the equivalent of we're not as bad as, as Trump. Right. It's lesser evilism. It's, it's, it's yeah. gun, gun violence uh, equivalent of lesser evilism. Yeah, so, it is. Yeah. Gun or, or handgun injury. 
firearm injury right. violence. Right. Yeah. But they're unlike usually, you know, usually the lesser of evil, lesser evilism argument comes from critics uh, of that system. But they're just like, no, this is our this is our our man, our mandate. Right. This is a uh, lesser evilism brought brought to a comic extreme. It's almost yeah. like it was written by Lauren Michaels or something like that. It's uh, so I, I just want to address the, the camera for a second. Bernie Bernard. If you're listening to this and watching this or either one of these things, please consider, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to draft you into running for president. I'm just asking you to use that energy that you have and can uh, encourage in people, the way you can redirect people's anger. It would be nice if you did that or maybe like encourage your supporters to do something in particular because people are out there looking for leadership. Guidance, yep. Guidance. And I also think he could probably turn some people, you know, would be angry white people into, he could like stop them from going to the right hmm. in times right. like this in a way that I don't think anyone else can. So we're really excited to have two um, amazing guests on today's show. Um, Gerald Horn is the Mord's Professor of History at the University of Houston. Uh, his research has addressed issues of racism and a variety of relations involving labor, politics, civil rights, international relations, and war. He's also written extensively about the film industry. Dr. Horn received his, listen to this, ready? He received his PhD in history from Columbia University and his JD from the University of California, Berkeley, and his BA from Princeton University. I guess the things that I were, I, I was just interested in the law, the law degree. Uh, he's written over three dozen books on everything ranging, on things ranging from Paul Robeson to um, international affairs to black Jacobins to the founding of the United States. He's just, he's really prolific. He wrote one about the 67 Mets too. Really? No. We got, oh. <laughs> He could have. I wouldn't have been surprised. <laughs> Why not? He wrote a Du Bois biography, Paul Robeson, The Artist is Revolutionary. Um, and he is a really interesting, and his one of his really interesting theses is that the United States was founded in order to save slavery. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, we're, we're going to get into all of that with him and also with uh, uh, Marianne Williamson, who... We all know, know and love. She is a uh, presidential candidate uh, in 2020 on the Democratic slate, a uh, famous author, businesswoman, uh, spiritualist, intellectual, uh, very interesting woman, has a lot of yeah. interesting things to say about New this York, and about last year. So New York Times, number one best-selling books. And she's also the founder of Project Angel Food, which is volunteer food delivery program uh, for homebound people with HIV, AIDS, and other life-threatening illnesses. Excellent. Well, these are going to be fun talks, so let's let's get right to it. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, really excited to talk to you, and wanted to know what your thoughts were, kind of generally, about the recent events over the last few days, last nine or ten days, and how they relate to history. I know that's a really general question, but if there's anyone who can answer it, it's you. Yes. First of all, thank you for inviting me. Second of all. Um, I think we all need to ask the fundamental question, why is this pornography of tape violence so often ensnaring black men, be it Eric Garner or Philando Castile or recently George Floyd? That's the fundamental question. And I don't think you can begin to understand that question unless you understand the history of this country. 
It's quite striking that uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones won a Pulitzer Prize for a commentary on the 1619 Project, and she caused a furor, being attacked from left to right, because she had the temerity to suggest that a motive force for the revolt against British rule in 1776 was a desire to preserve slavery. Uh, but as you may know, I wrote an entire book on that subject, and there was something to what she said that is to say that it's not coincidental that the founding fathers so-called were either slaveholders like George Washington or lawyers for slaveholders like John Adams, and that London was moving towards abolition as suggested by Somerset's case in 1772. And as historians have acknowledged for years, although they haven't connected the dots, Africans by several orders of magnitude did not support the settlers. Uh, unlike the current practice in the United States today, they did not engage in class collaboration. And as a result, since that time, black people have been treated like we're disruptors of the status quo, like we're criminals in waiting. As you probably know, the urban pol uh, police departments oftentimes grew out of slave patrols. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that, but go ahead. Yeah. And so you, you can't begin to understand this pornography of violence, take violence that ensnares black men without understanding this history. But two points. One point that makes me somewhat pessimistic is that I'm not sure even in circles in the center and the left, is there's any realization of the point I just articulated or even willingness to grapple with that point. And until you grapple with that point, it's gonna be very difficult to move ourselves away from the status quo. But on the other hand, I'm very heartened by the fact that there have been protests in Auckland, New Zealand, Sydney, Australia, London, England, Berlin, Germany, uh, adjunct ancillary demonstrations in Paris, the leadership of the African Union invites in the representative of the United States at their headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and gives them a dressing down. So that makes me optimistic because historically, one of the ways we've been able to dig ourselves out of this deep hole in which we find ourselves is because of global solidarity, international solidarity. And we're seeing quite a bit of that nowadays. And that's something to be optimistic about. On the point about slave patrols, I mean, when I, I spent years on the Garner case, and I, when I first started research, I was really shocked to learn about that, that the, the roots of a lot of, the, of modern policing came from, the, I mean, they, they were some of the first police forces were built up around the idea that uh, patrols were needed to keep, to keep slaves in their place, uh, and that a lot of modern policing ha has its roots in, in that tradition. Can you talk a little bit about that, about the history of policing in this country and how, how it traces from the past to the present? Well, first of all, with regard to policing, it's not only the so-called organized police forces, but the United States historically, particularly in the earlier period, relied quite a bit on volunteers. And so this was a way <laughs> to co-op uh, many poor Euro-Americans because they could get a bounty if they returned an enslaved African to that enslaved African's master. And then, of course, if you look at the history of the Second Amendment, which has subsequently been interpreted to grant an individual right to bear arms, 
as the language of that amendment suggests, early on, it was thought as a way to generate militias. Militias as the 1807 Insurrection Act, which I understand the 45th president was thinking of invoking, uh, militias were a way to deal with insurrections, particularly domestic insurrections, domestic insurrections by the indigenous, and by the way, obviously, these vaunted constitutional liberties, so-called, did not apply to the indigenous nor the Africans. And certainly, these uh, militias were designed to deal with what unfolded in Richmond, Virginia, circa 1800, with Gabriel's revolt or Denmark Vesey's revolt uh, pre-1820, or circa 1820, I should say, in Charleston, South Carolina, in the AM Church, AME Church, which subsequently has direct lineage to the church where nine worshipers were massacred by Dylan Roof, uh, an avowed white supremacist, just a few years ago, uh, or the militias that arose to basically subdue Nat Turner. And so, I mean, I could go on and on and on. And so part of the problem with the United States that's been dimly understood is that there are two contending class forces in the United States, not just the 1% and the 99% or the owners of the means of production and those who toil for the means of production, but there's a sharper dichotomy in the sense that the, there was class struggle embodied in the experience of enslaved Africans. Rarely did we engage in collaboration with our so-called masters. And when we did, it, it, it was oftentimes disastrous as represented in Django Unchained in the Samuel L. Jackson character. Whereas if you look at the history of settler colonialism with the Europeans crossing the Atlantic, uh, basically, that was a class collaborationist project from its beginning, because oftentimes they were backed by investors. Oftentimes the poor were indentured servants, and then they could work for seven years, and then they could have uh, a go at uh, seizing the land of the Native Americans. And with luck and pluck, they could then stock it with the labor of enslaved Africans and become wealthy. So as I said, part of the problem as well is that the historical professions, as the conservatives often gripe, is dominated by liberals. They shouldn't gripe, because what happens is that the liberal historians then write a history that tends to overdetermine liberalism, even though this is a country, at least amongst this Euro-American majority, that's certainly not liberal. They're conservatives. I mean, in Dixie, they vote nine to one for the right across class lines that have been doing so for more than a half century. And I think that gives a very distorted impression, which is one of the reasons why uh, Hannah Jones's Pulitzer was so hotly contested uh, by many of these so-called liberal historians. But once again, you have the ideology coming up against the reality of George Floyd. And it's unclear to me if the ideology is going to yield in the face of that bitter reality how does the how did the protests happening now compare to um the protests during the civil rights movement and are you heartened by their decentralization pessimistic about their decentralization that's a very good question i mean i, I think that what's happening today is is more reminiscent of what happened in april 1968 with the slaying of martin Luther king because you had an eruption 
the chain of eruptions from the Atlantic to the Pacific, as opposed to what was generally localized in Watson, August 1965, Detroit and Newark in 1967. New York in 64. Exactly. Um, so th that chain, I, I understand that there are uh, over now 100 cities right now that have seen some sort of manifestation of one sort or another. A couple of distinguishing characteristics. Uh, one of the knocks on the eruption of the 1960s, people would always say, why are you burning down your own neighborhood? Well, I mean, now you see people, as the newspapers tell us, are going into Buckhead, Beverly Hills, Soho. So that line is going to have to change for better or for worse. And then there's the slogan. I'm not sure where it's coming from. So uh, I don't necessarily want to pin down its genealogy. But this uh, slogan of eat the rich, which I think has a class connotation, shall we say. And then there's the confrontation with state power particularly not only with regard to what happened with the precinct in Minneapolis, which was torched, or the breaching of security at the State House in Columbus, Ohio, but also what has been happening at the White House, uh, where the man now known as Bunker Boy was sent fleeing with his family into the bowels of the White House, into some sort of safe, safe space, because the Secret Service feared that the protesters outside the gates were about to enter the White House with their pitchforks and inflict mayhem on the oath in the Oval Office. Now, this confrontation face-to-face -face with state power, I think, cannot be underestimated. Although, of course, uh, in a sense, that's not, nothing new. When you have people coming face-to-face -face with the National Guard, as happened in the 1960s, well, that's confrontation with state power too. Uh, but this is happening, I dare say, in the midst of international solidarity. And I think the international solidarity is not only driven by the ugliness of the Floyd video, but also I, I think the international community has headed up to their keister with uh, the 45th US president. Uh, I think that helps to explain why. Chancellor Merkel decided not to appear in this photo op at Camp David for the so-called G7 meeting. And certainly, I think that in Africa, where their countries have been dismissed as so-called S-hole countries, I'm not sure if there's any abiding affection uh, for the oath in the Oval Office. So once again, I think that that is a kind of distinguishing characteristic. And then, of course, the, the youth. And, the multi, and for lack of a better term, the multiracial, multi-ethnic diversity, to use that buzzword, particularly in Washington, D.C., I think it's noteworthy. I think that the, what happened today with Mark Esper, who, as we speak, I think he's still defense secretary, but depending on when, when you broadcast this, he may not be, because he broke ranks and objected to how the military was used for that photo op. And now the latest news is that former Pentagon chief Jim Mattis has broken his silence and blasted the president on a similar basis. So that kind of fragmentation at the top can only be good news, it seems to me, for those who are trying to effectuate change in this country. Apart from getting rid of Donald Trump, what are the goals of this movement? Well, certainly police reform. Now, but once again, I don't think there can be really sincere... You know, police really just reflect the dominant culture. And so 
to treat the police as a thing in itself or a thing apart without any interrogation of the puppeteers, I think is misleading and it's, it's going to lead to uh, an unsatisfying result. But having said that, uh, I do think that some of the proposals that are coming out of uh, Minneapolis, or as they call it there, occupied Dakota territory, are worthy of inspection. Uh, for example, even in Los Angeles, post August 1965, there was discussion about how do you convert police from seeing themselves as an occupying army or a force of Marines in enemy territory to being closer to social workers, for example. And that is something that's going to have to be pursued. Obviously, strategies of de-escalation are going to have to be pursued. Obviously, there needs to be reform with regard to sending surplus Pentagon materiel, be it grenade launchers or armored personnel carriers, uh, to uh, urban police departments, because if you give these police a hammer, then all the people look like nails and they get hammered down. I mean, I don't think that there is any deficit in terms of coming up with these ideas with regard, uh, regarding police reform. Now, part of the problem, to go back to your uh, question, uh, Madam Halper, is that you mentioned decentralization. And I, I think that decentralization, I understand how it happens, because when you have centralization, like the Black Panther Party in the 1960s, the leaders are arrested, detained, killed in their beds, like Mark Clark on December 4th, 1969, incarcerated, etc. And so it seems to me that the de decentralization of the Black Lives Matter movement is an adaptation to a degree as to what happened to centralized organizations. And I understand that. The problem is that oftentimes decentralized organizations uh, have difficulty in planning. They oftentimes rely heavily on spontaneity. And as the events of the past eight or nine days suggest, the spontaneity can carry you a long way uh, in this country particularly uh, given the youthful energy with a lot of students out of school without summer jobs or internship and a lot of unemployed people to boot. But in the long term, it seems to me, we're gonna have to figure out a way to escape this dilemma that we're in, where we find ourselves relying heavily on spontaneity because people are apprehensive about what happens when you have a centralized organization. Getting back to the idea of how do we get to a police force that looks more like social work and less like an occupying army. What's your vision for how that could work in American cities going forward? Like in, a, in an ideal world, what would that police force look like? How would it be operated? What would be, what would be the, the bureaucratic structure? Uh, Cause I mean, you, you could take some simple steps like ending statistics based policing, broken windows theory, that kind of thing. But what would be in your mind, What's the, next, what's the next step? You know, the first thing that came to my mind was seeking to disarm the police. But unlike some of my liberal friends, I'm, I'm not into making proposals that in the current conjuncture have little possibility of being implemented. But at some point in the future, we're going to have to see a progressive disarming of the police I think that if you look at other leading capitalist countries, it shows that it can be done. And at some point, we're going to have to get to that. At some point, 
we're going to have to get to a serious civilian patrol uh, control of the police. Now, of course, you've had stabs of, towards that, particularly in Los Angeles. But usually what happens is that, as in Los Angeles, where the police union is relatively strong, and then it helps to support district attorneys like Jackie Lacey, the, the current DA, who then runs for office with their support and then becomes reluctant to bring charges against these police officers who are committing offenses against the civilian population. And then that gets you to the other question, which of course is campaign finance reform. But once again, <laughs> we, we run up against the stumbling block, the reality of the present coloration of the federal judiciary with Mitch the Grim Reaper, Reaper McConnell and his comrade Trump uh, stacking the ju judiciary as we speak, not to mention the Supreme Court with Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. But I think that what I'm getting to is that the kinds of reforms that are necessary, I think, are evident. The problem is the political gridlock in this country, which in a sense stems from the structure of this country of settler colonialism, and the fact that, let's say in Dixie, where across class lines, the Euro-Americans vote nine to one for the right. And so until you can change that, it's gonna be very difficult to have any serious reform in this country, not, not just in Dixie, uh, but in California as well. I guess that's a question I have though, like police reform is often a, a hot topic in liberal circles, but when it comes down to it, even in places like New York, which has been a crucible of some of the worst police practices in this country, uh, Democrats, particularly in, in you know, the upper, upper East Side, Upper West Side, they always end up voting for the law and order politician. They always end up voting for more prisons. They always end up voting for more cops uh, and, and tougher measures and supporting policies like stop and frisk. Um, how do you break that cycle? Because, I mean, it, it feels like the political solution, there's, there's a lot of big talk from some people, and then, but when it comes down to actually doing it, the two parties seem unfortunately pretty close in that regard. Well, I, I look at your current mayor, uh, de Blasio, who, as mm -hmm. you know, got elected because he promised to move in the direction of police reform, particularly with regard to stop and frisk. Right, then he brings in Bratton immediately. <laughs> right. Not only bringing in Bratton, but I'm inferring from what I've been reading in the New York press that he may feel intimidated by the police force, particularly. Mm -hmm. I was looking very carefully at what they did to his daughter, for example, which reminds me of, you know, reminds me of Obama, in fact. And I'm wondering if in his memoirs, he's going to tackle the kinds of, and we already know that he had all these assassination threats, perhaps attempts, but to what extent are the so-called liberals, when they get into office, intimidated by the men and some women who hold the guns? And so once again, just to return to where I began, it's going to be very difficult for the United States to turn the corner from where we are as we're in the midst of these George Floyd protests, because I don't think people really want to come to grips with the reality. Uh, they're comfortable with their cliches, they're comfortable with their half-baked arguments, they're comfortable with giving each other a sort of uh, ideological mononucleosis about 
kissing each other with the same old tired ideas. Uh, meanwhile, uh, you know, some of us are being subjected to lynchings on tape. Do you think that the more like decentralized, radical discourse and, and, and protests, does that create the opening for less radical but in the right direction reforms? Like, does that make it easier for things that, it, does it shift the Overton window? Sorry to use a cliche, but <laughs> does it drag us a little bit away from the status quo potentially? Or, is, or could it provoke a backlash? Or do we, is the whole point we don't know? I'm not sure. I, I'm waiting. Maybe you can brief me. I'm, I'm waiting to, to, to see the figures on uh, Trump's ratings in light of recent events. Well, they've gone down. Are they beyond 40? Or are they below 40? Uh, I mean, he's at something like 66% are disapproving of his handling of this. So I, I haven't seen the approval rating numbers. But. Yeah, I, I think that's the key figure because, you know, he's been remarkably consistent with his base and rarely dipping below 41, 42, sometimes getting up to 46, 47. And in my estimation, uh, I don't think that that's accidental because I think what's happening in, in sort of slow motion that make America great again, in a sense, means going back to the roots when there was all this massive affirmative action for those of European ancestry, including land-grant colleges, land-grant universities, from which the rest of us are barred, seizing the land of the Native Americans under the sainted Lincoln with the Homestead Act of the 1860s. And it seems to me that just like many progressives, they say that we're gonna vote for Joe Biden because we see that as a step away from Trumpism. I think that many in Trump's base, they say we're gonna stick with Trump because we see that as a step back into the past. And as they see it, stepping back into the past is not a bad idea. <laughs> because, you know, there was, because basically what's happened with the rise of the anti-Jim Crow movement is a progressive devaluation of the currency that is whiteness. I oftentimes use the example of the St. Louis Browns outfielder, Pete Gray in the 1940s, with all due respect, to my differently able friends, he had one arm. But because Negroes were barred from baseball, uh, he could get a full-time job <laughs> with the St. Louis Browns, uh, even though uh, you know, fly balls to the outfield were oftentimes an adventure. But once desegregation happens, he gets pushed out. Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, et al. come in. And so, you know, the liberals can tell us that everybody you know, applauded and saluted, said that this was a great leap forward for humanity. I'm not sure if the Trump base agrees with it. And that's the ugly and difficult truth that at some point we're going to have to deal with. How do you see the um, 2020 election? Earlier in the show, we, we have a segment called the Four Basic Food Groups, where it's Republicans suck, Democrats suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? And... Um, <laughs> Then we also have our stoned moments. So this week's stoned moment was Joe Biden um, telling African-American leaders in Delaware that um, in Wilmington, I think that, you know, it was he was that cops should be trained to shoot people in the leg, not in the heart. And we were right. kind of like, that's the Democrat. That should be the Democratic uh, motto slogan, shooting you in the leg, not the heart. Right. I, I paid close and careful attention to that comment, by the way. And. Uh... 
of course, it reminded me reminded me of um, the cliche about the lesser of two evils, for yeah. example. And it reminded me also the fact that uh, Mr. Trump also had talked about, I think he talked about yeah. shooting immigrants in the land. Yep, exactly, yeah. And Israelis will do that off, the Israeli army, the IDF will do that with uh, Palestinians. Right. So I, I think the question we're all going to have to deal with, and I, I've talk, only talked about it intermittently because it's difficult to have a discourse about it, is how do we, how do we change Trump's base? I mean, th that's really the question. How do you get these people to, to perhaps believe or think that either it's not possible to turn the clock back, I guess that's the idea. How do you convince them that it's not possible to turn the clock back? But of course, I have to say, if they started pressing me, I would have to say it is possible to turn the clock back. So. I was just going to say, that's one of the things I find. I mean, I was a big Sanders fan as viewers. Mm -hmm. I am a big Sanders fan, but I tolerate a lot of criticism, which we provide a space for on the show. But that to me was one of the most frustrating things was that I did see a real potential of moving some Trump voters mm -hmm. um, away from Trump because he, as much as he's vilified for this, I mean, I think it's a strength. I think the, you know, the ability to, without obviously throwing anyone else under the bus, but the ability to speak to disaffected white men and women. Is Incidentally, I, I, mean, I know Barack Obama had been successful with some yeah. of the same voters. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes people are like, oh, why is he catering to people who defend, you know, who love Obama will say, isn't that catering to racism? I don't, I think it's trying to, trying to persuade racists, I think it's different from catering to racism. Um, but that's, you know, I don't know how much Joe Biden can reach Trump's vote base um, in the same way. Well, he, he might be able to just because some people perceive him as a friend of the working class right. and, yeah. you know, they're scrappy, scrappy Joe from Scranton. Yeah. What do you think about that, Professor? Do you think he's, he's well, got a chance to reach some of those those voters? I, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. And I have to say that when I hear the discourse about Trump voters being previously Sanders voters or being previously Obama voters, I say, A, that shows a certain amount of confusion. And B, I'm not sure if it's reassuring, given the fact that, you know, Mussolini started off as a socialist before he became a leader. Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I don't think we should uh, necessarily comfort ourselves with it, because I think if, if we don't comfort ourselves, perhaps it'll cause us to, to think more deeply and come up with different sorts of strategies. Maybe it'll cause the opposition party, as it oftentimes discusses, to try to make a larger turnout in the constituency that you know is going to vote nine to one in favor of you, as opposed to this uh, uphill climb, particularly in Dixie, particularly in Texas from where I'm speaking, that may help to shape you to be so angry about U.S. politics being here in Texas. I mean, if you're not angry about politics living in Texas, that means you're not paying attention. But what I'd like to see also, in addition to what we've been talking about, is more attention by progressive forces into what's going on with regard to the ruling class and its choices. Because as I see things, 
despite the tax cuts, for example, and despite many of these policies that are, are blatantly targeting the 1%, I think in the overall scheme of things, I'm not sure if Trumpism is good for the US ruling class. Um, it's hampered relationships with Germany, obviously, with Chancellor Merkel not coming to the G7, and hampered relations with the European Union. Uh, in terms of this anti-China policy, Germany and the EU are reluctant to sign on, uh, for example. Um, and I think that because Trumpism is so erratic and many in the investor class do not necessarily, like many of our friends on the left, just ascribe that to the in individual, they think that there might be something deeper, which means that even Trump poof disappears tomorrow, these deeper forces will still be impelling the United States in a certain kind of direction. And so I've oftentimes thought, when is the more realistic sector of the US ruling class going to try to effectuate a reshuffling of US politics to basically prevent the resurgence or another surge in Trumpism? I mean, that's sort of the thesis of books like uh the death of the liberal class by Chris Hedges. Like, in other words, the the ruling the ruling elites have lost their ability to affect the the, the or or tame down the the passions of uh, the population because they've become so ineffective um, at curbing their the the, the worst in instincts of of the of the ruling class right they like in other words that that left trump the polit the, the political opening in 2016 to run as a populist outsider challenging the washington elites and maybe that's maybe that's part of the reason why he hasn't been so good for the for the ruling class they they like in other words they they weren't able to keep him out of office uh, precisely because they've they've lost their control uh, over the process a little bit. I mean, isn't that possible that they that they've some some of what we're seeing is is evidence of a, a, a collapse in the power of of the the folks at the top? Well, in part, but you know, to revert to my historical understanding, you know, I did a book on the 17th century where I posited that the key to understanding the current United States is what happened in 1676, or what I call the spirit of 1676 with uh, Bacon's Rebellion, uh, led by an affluent Nathaniel Bacon with a diverse array of not so affluent settlers who were opposed to London's rule because they didn't feel London was moving sufficiently in a rapid fashion to take the land, land away from the Native Americans. That's why they wanted to overthrow London. Just like I say in 1776, the reason they wanted to overthrow London all the liberal claptrap and propaganda aside, is because they wanted to continue slavery and continue taking the land of the Native Americans. And so, you know, the settler colonial project, it's, it's kind of like musical chairs. And so, you know, the ruling class, they have their chairs, and then these Euro-American middle class and working class folks, they want a chair. But I'm not sure, and that's why it seems to me that they're, in a sense, sort of pushing the base, in, in a sense, when you give the electoral franchise and you have a system based on white supremacy, it, it helps to impel the base to push the country to the right. So it's not just the ruling class. I mean, you, you have to see the complicity of the base with the ruling class. Otherwise, 
I think all these historians who talk about working class agency need to shut up because they only want to talk about agency if it's something progressive, <laughs> but if it's something not so progressive, all of a sudden they're dupes of Fox News and Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> but if they do something progressive, then that's agency. <laughs> you know what I mean? What? What kind of nonsense? And then they expect people like me to follow them? I mean, get, out, get out of here with that nonsense. As, as I said, most of these people on the left, they're basically just recruiters from the Nation of Islam. They should get paid um, because with their inability to comprehend the class question, all they do is open the door for the race question with regard to the constituency that's most prone to vote against the right. What is the role of, simple question, what's the role of the historian mm. in talking about what's happening and especially when the question of violence is at play, mm. it, it seems very hard to to interrogate the role of violence on a strategic level now in a way that doesn't sound like you're blaming the people who are protesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's both understandable why this is happening, but is can there even be any talk of strategy or asks, demands, or... Um, being as nonviolent as possible, just for strategic reasons with the nonviolence. Mm. Well, it, one of the you asked me early on what was one of the differences between the '60s and today, and I think one of the differences is that in the '60s the line often was from various sectors that violence accomplishes nothing, but today with our increased knowledge of settler colonialism and how violence was used to uproot the indigenous and enslave the Africans, I don't hear that argument as much, or maybe I'm hanging out in the wrong circles, but certainly I don't hear this as much. Now, with, with regard to what's going on as we speak, uh, I, as investigative journalists, I would like to see more reporting on these random stories. Umbrella Man and St. Paul, the picture from Fairfield, California that I saw yesterday of this guy with a forklift lifting stuff out of a Best Boy, a Best Buy in the middle of the day. The apparent uh, systematic plundering of certain retail outlets, which is not to try to sweep under the rug the fact that poor people or black people might be engaged in similar activities. But the New York Times, which oftentimes infer inferentially likes to boast about its reporting, this story is based upon 34 interviews and pouring through thousands of documents. But I, so, okay, fine, all right. Dig into this issue, um, for example. And I think that if they dug into this, that issue, I, I think would help me to better respond to this question that you're raising. Now, certainly with regard to violence, generally, I, I just think that the correlation of forces right now is not positive towards oppressed people using violence. That's just the reality of, of, of the situation. Unless as the Panthers used to say, you know, you're customistic. I mean, you, you're, you're interested in getting mowed down systematically. So, I mean, that, that seems to be a simple question to answer. But I'm not sure if that's answering your question. It is. I just think I, I think it's really hard because the discussion is so often um, 
blames the people who are, first of all, mostly nonviolently rising up, but to the extent that there is violence, a lot of it's more vandalism, but it assumes that the status quo does not incorporate violence against the people who are now rising up. So I think there is a, like, it, it's hard to even get to this question because people get really defensive, understandably, and, and are like, well, it's the state that's violent. It's the police that's violent, not the people rising up. And of course, I mean, that's without, that goes without saying. Um, but I do, I mean, I do feel like that. Like, we do live in a world where just numerically, it's going, there could easily be a bloodbath. Mm -hmm. But even saying that, and and the and the, the, my side are you know would get mowed down, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and black people on that side would get mowed down first. Mm -hmm, and even mm -hmm. saying that though, I think is hard because then people again, it's like they they justify it. It's not that I'm making a. Of course, it's totally different from the state's violence. Um, but how do we talk about it in ways that are not conflated with kind of like shaming? And maybe it just has to be not white. I mean, white people have to not engage in this? Well, I don't know. Whenever I do a lot of black radio and, <laughs> and so, you know, part of the ethos of black radio is that people get on and vent. As we say, you know, they sell lots of woof tickets. And so therefore, if you're not down with launching an armed struggle in the next hour, you're a sellout, basically. And so basically when that happens, you know, I try to deflect the conversation. I try to do my rope a dope, but 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 certainly not engage on that level because you know people feel frustrated, people are angry, and so you know they're looking for a place to vent. And so you know, to me, I say let them vent. <laughs> I mean, first of all, if you're going to launch an armed struggle, you shouldn't announce it on the radio. Number one, and number two, you should just go and go on. <laughs> I mean, I'll come to your defense if you're captured, probably. <laughs> Professor, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it, Dr. Horn. And uh, you, you've written, uh, how many books have you written? You've written more books than anybody I've ever heard of in my, in my life. Uh, Not really. No? Well, I wrote a book on the 16th century. That's the next, it'll be out next week. Oh, really? Wow. Okay, and what's it called? How many have you written? 30 some, 40 something? Exactly, 30 something. The Dawning of the Apocalypse. Dawning of the Apocalypse. Okay, Roots excellent. Of slavery, white supremacy, settler colonialism, and capitalism in the long 16th century. So that's coming out next week. That's right. All right. Wow. Well, congratulations. Uh, yeah. And thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Good luck. All right. Take care now. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, Dr. Gerald Horn, probably one of the most prolific uh, writers out there, historians out there. Yeah, I mean, he's got like more books than a lot of people have years, which is pretty amazing. But uh, yeah, no, really interesting stuff. And and I, you know, I think a lot. I thought a lot about, you know, with Donald Trump, his message about going back in time was so explicit that when he was at the convention, his convention in 2016, his first speaker was Scott Baio, which is he was like literally, let's go back to happy days, you know. Yeah. Uh, or maybe that's too radical, so we'll just go back to Charles in charge. Right. Exactly. So that's you know, there's there's definitely day. something something to that. Uh, and now we have another amazing guest. Right. Somebody we've been we've been wanting to talk to for a while. It just kind of hasn't worked out for this reason or that. Um, but uh, in, another in our sort of long series of 2020 presidential candidates uh, and uh, interested folks. So we're going to talk to Marianne Williamson, who's going to 
also comment on the, the, the amazing events the last week or so, uh, in addition to uh, giving us a little bit of a postmortem on what happened in the 2020 uh, yeah. Democratic primary race. So let's, uh, let's see what she has to say. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We've been wanting to have you for a really long time. So we were so excited when when you accepted. And yeah, we, we have a lot to ask you about. I mean, your thoughts on the protests. I actually heard one of your I, last night. I listened to one of your evening meditations. And then I also listened to your um, uh, discussions about covid and and the protests. Um, but I want to start out uh, asking you about your down ballot uh, initiative that you're um, participating in or organizing, I guess. Yeah. Well, obviously, the uh, races in November include uh, more than the presidency. They include congressional races all over the country. And also, many of us have become extremely aware, as you certainly are, that there are different shades of blue. And there's the corporatist shade of blue, and then there's the progressive shade of blue. And if we're going to have fundamental change, it needs to be much bigger than just electing Democrats. It's which kind of Democrats. And we also, at this point, I believe, have to challenge um, the leadership of the Democratic Party. So it's really exciting to be uh, talking to um, Shahid Buttar, uh, Jijin Perelman is running against... Um, Debbie, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and uh, Jamal Bowman, who's running against Elliot Engel. Um, it, it's, it's simply time. I don't know why Democrats defer to the Democratic establishment more than Republicans defer to their own establishment. It's not about not liking people. It's simply saying, you have not gotten the job done. It's time for new people. So yeah. I, I'm excited because I think that a lot of times progressives or even just Democrats um, are very excited by the sort of hot and sexy adrenaline driven uh, presidential races and are not as um, almost psychologically mature in recognizing that these down ballot races, this is where the rubber meets the road. So I'm excited to introduce uh, people to some of these really great candidates. Uh, tonight we're talking to Andrew Romanoff, who's running against John Hippenlooper uh, for the Democratic uh, nomination. Uh, Senate nomination, which is a perfect example of what we're talking about. Perfect example. Romanoff is uh, very progressive. He was Speaker of the House in Colorado. And of course, Chuck Schumer and the, the Democratic establishment didn't want someone that uh, 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 progressive to run. And so they talked Hickenlooper into it when Hickenlooper had already said he didn't even want to. Oh, um, it's like the Obama with um, Paris type of thing. Oh, and Charlton last night, of course, the Republicans uh, defeated, uh, they put up other candidates last night, I'm sure you know all this, uh, defeated Steve King in the Iowa primary. But that doesn't mean the work is accomplished because they were simply smart. Uh, they, they put up somebody whose main problem with Steve King was that he didn't help Trump enough to get the wall built. So <laughs> we need to understand it's not just, ooh, being happy that uh, King is gone, we've got to elect J.D. Shelton. So the work yep. goes on, we gotta keep it going. And I heard, I heard you making this really important point on rising, uh, friends of the show, uh, Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty's rising, uh, that it's not just about winning, although it is, but you talked about how it builds um, name recognition and how so many people lose their first few races, um, which I think is a really important point that we don't talk about enough. Absolutely. And look at Cholton. J.D. came within three points of, of defeating King last time. Now he's going to have to sort of start all over the process with the new. But what you're saying is exactly the point. Most people don't win their first time. Right. So even when it's someone, you know, Democrats get 
too stuck on, oh, but he can't win, or oh, but she can't win. Why is it that that doesn't stop Republicans? They got rid of Eric Cantor. Right. It kills me when Republicans have more like, we're doing it anyway. I know. There's so much, they have so much more chutzpah. How is that possible? <laughs> Terrible, yeah. Um, well, in connection with that, I also wanted to ask about your postmortem on the Democratic primary race. Because I remember when I saw you in Iowa, and I thought, first of all, I thought your talk was fascinating. Your, your stump speech was amazing. And I remember having the thought that you were going to win the nomination listening to you. Uh, and you, you said this a really interesting thing. You talked about the veneer of the deep conversation that, uh, that marks uh, modern politics or modern two-party politics and that people increasingly could see through that um, and weren't satisfied with, with uh, the shallowness of, of modern politics. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and about how, how you saw that playing out in, in, the, in the primary race? I mean, do, do we need a trend? You talk about needing a phenomenon to, to combat a phenomenon in Donald Trump. And have, have they achieved that? I mean, or have they even thought about it? Well, we know that they haven't, but that doesn't mean that we don't want to do everything possible uh, to deny the president a, um, another term. Mm -hmm. um, we have developed over the last few years a politics of people-pleasing, a politics that has to do with transaction and power, uh, perceived power, strategy, um, dealing with the effects, uh, speaking to what you think people want to hear, always trying to dumb down the message just enough to get more people to vote for you, which is a very different uh, perspective than knowing that if you just have a deep conversation, that itself becomes a force multiplier. Conviction is a force multiplier. And even though there are a lot more people who love than hate in this country, the haters have conviction. And the Democratic Party has lost its conviction. Uh, the Democrat, the Republicans uh, don't walk their talk, but Democrats too often don't talk their walk. Everybody's afraid mm -hmm. to just come out and say what they really mean. And if you are avoiding saying what you really mean after enough time, you don't even mean it anymore. Or when you, when you do mean it, it comes across as disingenuous because you haven't been saying it. Mm -hmm. I think what's important, though, is if we look at the difference between the campaign, which now seems like ages ago, versus what's happening in this country right now. I think uh, many Democrats are hopefully waking up to the fact we would have been better off by doing the kind of radical truth telling that I was talking about. And race is a perfect example. Uh, my conversation about reparations, my conversation about racial injustice on the criminal level, on the environmental level, on the political level. Um, I think uh, radical truth-telling now is not only what the country is ready for, but what millions and millions of people doing are out in the streets doing regardless of whether or not the political establishment will do it for them. Has the party not supported that kind of radical truth-telling out of a misread of, of the electorate, or is it for a more cynical reason, because they are aligned with donors that uh, have a disinterest in talking that way? Uh, I mean, because it's always been an open question. Do the Democrats just not understand what's going on or do they understand very well what's going on? I think mm -hmm. it's both. But I also think if all you do is hang out with those donors, you forget what it's even like out there on the streets because you've been in those cocktail parties so long. You're all day, every day with that group of elite. And they're in a silo. They don't get what's going on on the streets. I think many of them are as shocked by what's happening right now as Republicans are. But right. I'm not. I'm sure you're not. And so it, it's both. 
and the continued belief that if they just raise enough money, I, it, look what happened with Hillary. Hillary had a lot more money than uh, twice as much. Had, yeah, but that that alone won't win it. What will win it is moral authority. What will win it is radical truth telling. Um, and my own experience, of course, was that that was considered deeply inconvenient. Um, <laughs> One more thing I want to add to that is, uh, you know, it's interesting because Hillary Clinton herself said that that she was wor- that there was a possibility that her that she and other people in her world were were a little out of touch maybe which i thought was a funny yeah. rare yeah. insight on her part yeah yeah um i remember reading in her book which i thought was a very good book but she did say at one point i remember in one page she said she had talked to some man who who said to his kids in the car let's stop at mcdonald's and one of his daughters said that's okay daddy i know we can't afford it Mm, yeah. And Hillary said, I called Bill that night and said, uh, Bill, we have to do something for these people. And my thought was, this was news to you. Right. right. This exactly, was right. news to you. Yeah. Um, and also, I remember something that um, Al Gore said after he lost in 2000, although he didn't really lose. Right. Uh, but something that he said uh, on a, in an interview, he said, you know, I would land in a city and operatives would tell me what I should say based on the demographics and who wants what. He said, I wish I had thrown them all out and just spoken from my heart. I would have done better. What did you learn being a candidate about the process of American politics that you didn't know going into it that, that surprised <laughs> you? Uh, well, or maybe about the media response, the process as well. I learned that it's more corrupt than I even knew. Okay. I learned that, and I didn't think I went into this naive. Uh, mm-hmm. I think what I was naive about was the left and the Democrats. I thought we were better. Um, and I, I think we all want to be. I think Americans want to be better. But I, uh, there is a political media industrial complex. Um, I saw it when I got off stage uh, after that second debate. And I don't want to name names. And also, I don't want to increase any cynicism right now about the Democratic nominee because it's important that we win. But I saw the looks in those people's eyes. I I saw who who among them made it very clear with the looks in their eyes, you will not be on the third stage. We can't have it, right? You can't have it. You can't, you're not one of us and you won't remain here. Mm. What what kind of look was, I mean, I I understand the meaning. I'm just curious. I don't know if you can describe it, but very very what? Yeah. Very hostile. I remember one, one uh, woman pundit that we all know said to me, well, you know, we don't all do yoga. And I remember I said to her, it's kind of a shame because there are actually more yoga girls than there are coal miners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. What, what's your take on um, what's, what's driving the, what exactly are we, are we looking at in terms of these protests? I mean, it, it's a very complicated picture. Obviously there's so, there's so much going on. The, the pandemic has resulted in massive job losses, so people were stressed about that going into it. We this this incident uh, with George Floyd is a repeat of something that happened, you know, the I Can't Breathe incident from a few years ago. So it, people are obviously very frustrated. There's been zero progress on that front, but it seems like there's an explosion of other frustrations that's coming out as a result of this. What what in your in your mind are we are we seeing? What, what what's your diagnosis of of what exactly is happening there? 
None of this came from out of the blue, and the term intersectionality has been used for a while. These things are connected. Criminal injustice, economic just injustice, environmental injustice, they all stem uh, from the same dark and ugly phenomenon. It began around 40 years ago. I don't need to... I, I've, telling you these things is almost ridiculous because I learned so much of it from you. Um, but starting about 40 years ago, American capitalism made a uh, distinct disconnection from any sense of moral or ethical responsibility to people, planet, or animals. And then with their undue influence of uh, financial power that they were able to have on our government, our government became over the next two decades uh, little more than a handmaiden to those amoral uh, economic forces. And anytime you have an amoral system, it will inevitably have immoral results to the point where, as we know, our government is little more than a, um, a system of legalized bribery. It is not at, at this moment a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And when Lincoln said at Gettysburg that the war had been fought so that of the people, by the people, for the people would not perish from the earth, it is perishing. And that is what is so important, I believe, about what's happening right now. You know, the, the government did not wake up and say, let's end slavery. It was the abolitionist movement, beginning with the evangelicals in New Hampshire, who stood up. The people rose up and the people stepped in. The government didn't say, let's give women the right to vote. With the women's movement, the people rose up and the people stepped in. The government didn't say, let's end segregation. The people rose up and the people stepped in. And when the Democratic Party has failed us, has, has so allowed its own soul to be sucked out of its core so that it's hardly even recognizable uh, for someone my age who remembers when it has a moral authority, what's happening right now, the people have risen up and the people are stepping in. It's the most traditional American thing possible. Enough is enough. We had 40% of Americans, even before this pandemic, who, as you guys well know, I mean, I'm not telling you anything, you know, I know, couldn't afford a four, $400 unexpected expenditure, even before this pandemic. And that our government's response has been Mnuchin's idea of liquidity. Are you kidding me? A $1,200 one-time payment? How are people, and now we have these evictions going on? Uh, there's clearly a hunger crisis. We had 40 million people in America who were hungry before this. And we have, this is so, the way our government is responding to the pandemic is very much the way the government has been acting before the pandemic. Make sure that the 1% is okay. Make sure that the corporate matrix is okay. And it is literally telling the American people to drop there. So that is not disconnected from the racial injustice. This is or the criminal injustice. It's not disconnected. Uh, this, uh, it, you know, you almost like hate to be hyperbolic at this point, And yet what's happening is exactly how tyranny unfolds. And with that kind of domi economic domination, always comes that kind of police domination. This is how fascism unfolds on a place. And I, I am today feeling very hopeful because even though we are seeing unbelievable dictatorial nonsense and very, very dark stuff coming from this president, we are also seeing some great stands of integrity and bravery and courage, not only in the streets, but among people, look at Mike Mullen's statement, uh, former uh, chief of staff, even Mark Esper coming out, uh, out and saying that he is against the use of, of military force. So this could go either way. 
but we're seeing the worst of America, and I also believe we're starting to see the best of America. And um, each and every one of us have our part to play in choosing which way we'll go. So, you, you know, you talk a lot about love, and I think a lot of people often associate love um, and the discourse around love as like hippy-dippy, you know, frou-frou, not serious. But, you know, I do think like love is a really important part of, of activism or organizing. And it's, I wanted to just read this quote by, because I think a lot of people may not know that, you know, Che Guevara, regardless of your opinions of him, was very, you know, serious about politics and intellectual about politics. And, and he wrote, uh, he said, at the risk of seeming ridiculous, let me say that the true revolutionary is guided by a great feeling of love. It is impossible to think of a genuine revolutionary lacking this quality. Um, so I wanted to know your thoughts about that connection between love and politics and also love and outrage. Because I, I think that, you know, something people were always mad at Bernie Sanders for yelling, um, which I thought was absurd because they should have been mad about the things he was yelling about. But on the other side of that kind of indignation and anger and rage, I think really is a love of people. And that's why people are upset about things like evictions, poverty, um, police moral brutality. Outrage, moral outrage is not born of anger. Moral outrage is born of love. Right, but yeah. I say this as a woman to another woman, let's be really clear. When you just said people uh, uh, look at love and they call it hippy-dippy, they don't when Reverend Barber says it. They didn't when Martin Luther King says it. They didn't when Gandhi said it. Gee, Katie, what do you think the difference is there? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That was all part of the well-strategized plan to make sure that woman would not be on the stage in the third debate. Yeah. Mm. To follow up on that, there, there's been... Um, such a focus, I think, especially in the media presentation of um, various political controversies on uh, demonizing each other, uh, defining the enemy, uh, and, but re I, I hear relatively little of that kind of rhetoric that emphasizes love and forgiveness in public discourse. And I, I just wondered, where, where do you see the uh, that coming from and is there a solution to that like i i well it's you know I, I wrote a book called healing the soul of america that came out in 1997 which was about spirituality and politics love and po i wrote a book called politics of love i grew up in a generation uh martin luther king certainly talked about love right. uh, uh bobby kennedy said it was a fight for the soul of america uh, uh John F. Kennedy said that we could not afford to be materially rich and spiritually poor. So I grew up in a generation where the, the uh, counterculture uh, counter uh, counter at that time was all things. It was spiritual, it was political, it was sexual, it was musical. It was all of those things. It was not uh, uh, divided into these uh, categories where never the twain shall meet. Right. It is very, for someone my age, very odd that the Democratic Party and the conversation in general on the left became so over-secularized because it wasn't mm. over-secularized when I was growing up. It was actually very juicy. It was very soulful. And it was only um, in the last few decades that it became this kind of oddly neo-Marxist, oddly overly secularized conversation. And forget even about mocking me 
what it has done to lose so many Americans that this mockery of anything religious or spiritual has become almost like a calling card of the pseudo-intellectual class. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, during the Vietnam War, there was a strong religious left. There was right. William Sloan Coffin. There was um, the Berrigan Brothers. Now, so if you actually look at what happened in black churches, the, the connection between, uh, between progressive politics and, and the churches was never broken. One, something that happened that was very um, significant, however, has to do with the Jews and the Catholics. This is also, uh, don't underestimate, I hope both of you will, will really look into this, what happened over the last two days with the Catholic bishop uh, yeah. taking a stand against uh, the president being at that the Catholic church and the Episcopalian bishop, the woman, the Episcopalian the day before right. the man Catholic. I thought it was interesting. He said, we're not going to let the Episcopalians go first. <laughs> I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. That's very significant because when I was growing up, the institutional uh, uh, Jewish forces and institutional Catholic forces could always be counted on to take strong stands for social justice. Right. Tikkun Olam, oh, right, and the Jewish absolutely. side, Tikkun and then Olam, but also the, the liberation Latin theology of the Catholic, of yeah, exactly. Catholic social justice tradition, very strong. Romero, yeah. What happened, what happened, though, pretty much at the same time, is that both the Catholics and the Jews became very singularly focused, the Catholics on abortion and Jews on Israel. Both right. of that, that sucked a lot of juice of the sort of moral, religious, and spiritual standing out of the left. What happened to white Protestants, the William Sloan coffins? I don't really know. I've never understood it. I'm not one, so I don't get it. But yeah. I know, uh, particularly among young people today, uh, there is an understanding and a, and a listening that uh, refuses to separate the, the, the change of heart that is necessary from the change of our political institutions, because everything we do is infused with the consciousness with which we do it. Even look at these protests. Look at the protests. Look what's happening as we speak. As long as the protests are violent, if there's any violence, the president can come up with all this nonsense about using uh, military force against Antifa and all of that narrative. When they're completely peaceful, he has no standing. He has no standing. Even, you know, principal, there are principal conservatives. There are principals, Republicans in this country. And everybody's looking and going, why, why would we be using force against those people? What are they doing? So the idea of, of our inner, uh, the stance of peace. You know, we know what collectivized hatred does. That's what ISIS is. That's what Nazis are. It's collectivized hatred. So why should we find it so odd that there is also such thing as collectivized love, collectivized dignity, collectivized decency? That's what you're seeing on the streets of America right now. And regardless of who said what about it, who mocked it, who put it down, it is on full display in America today. So there is an argument that's emerging that that the the in order in order to have a nonviolent movement be successful, the your opponent has to have a conscience, and we've we've moved past the 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 point where we believe that that's true. And there there's an increasingly an argument that the time the efficacy of peaceful demonstration has passed. Um, I, I, so you're you're not uh, on that take. 
first of all, first of all, there are two things to that. Mm-hmm. Well, the peaceful demonstrations have passed. We haven't even tried it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, oh, we tried love. No, actually, we didn't. But secondly, nobody thought during the civil rights movement that we were speaking to the conscience of the segregationist. Right. Nobody thought that the deep Southern uh, 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 segregationist had a conscience. What made the change happen was the conscience among Americans. Right. And so nobody is, nobody, I'm not assuming that, that Donald Trump and his malignant narcissism, his whatever it is, is going to wake up and have a spiritual epiphany tomorrow, although I'll be thrilled if it happens. Yeah. That's not, not where the power, the power lies in the conscience of the Mike Mullins of the world the conscience of the Mark Espers of the world, the conscience of the police chiefs of, the, uh, of this country who are saying, no, 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 we can't go in that direction. The conscience of individuals, uh, Republicans who are saying we can't elect, reelect Trump. I do believe that the basic American on both sides of the political spectrum is a decent, dignified person who is appalled at, at, at genuinely undemocratic actions and as long as and that's how the civil rights movement succeeded awakened the conscience of the american people and that's what we are doing as we speak and what we must continue to do in the days ahead yeah i think that's a really important point and we i mean really what was response a huge part of the civil rights movement right was the role of what was was the role of and the use of media when the media captured little kids, you know, being water hosed or with dogs being sent um, at them, it, I think it reached people who were either apathetic or maybe a little bit on the fence about this stuff um, in a way that I think this has the potential to, to do. And something I find really challenging is how to separate, how to talk about the violence that's happening without a creating like this false equivalence between violence in response to police violence and be also like coming off as chastising. It's, it's very hard, I think, to have the conversation about strategy. Um, and because of various, you know, dynamics and uh, white people's roles in, in politics, it's, it's I, I'm struggling with how to even like be, provide a space for that conversation in a way that doesn't sound patronizing uh, or moral equivalencing. What's difficult is that evil wears a business suit in America today. And so it becomes harder to point out the brutality of a system because it's so often charming. And it's being articulated by people who are oh so polite. And who, if you don't really look deeper at what the system is doing, the real brutality is a system that has millions of American children going to school every day in classrooms that don't even have the adequate school supplies to teach a child to read. And if that child cannot learn to read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation are drastically decreased and the chances of high school uh, of incarceration are drastically increased. That's brutal. Right. You have a and system- violence too. Pardon? And violence also. Absolutely. It yeah. is violence. The systems are violent. The right. systems are brutal. And so this has to be pointed out in a way that does take, you know, it's interesting. I found, you know, you asked me what I found out in running. Matt, you asked me about mm-hmm. my experience running. Yes, I experienced and realized that the system is even more corrupt than I knew. But I also realized that people are even more wonderful and intelligent mm-hmm. than I knew. When you saw me, you, you heard me speak, Matt, at a church in Iowa. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you saw it that day. I saw it in Iowa. I saw it in New Hampshire. I saw it in South Carolina. I saw it in Nevada. I've seen it elsewhere. The American people are not stupid. And the problem that the Democrats have is that they talk down to people. And it's unnecessary. My father was a lawyer, and he always used to say, speak to the smartest person on the jury. Mm-hmm. You know, right. I, I found in states, the whitest states in America, such as Iowa and New Hampshire, when I would just give a little thumbnail sketch, for instance, uh, of the history of race in America, starting with the slave ships in 1619, 250 years of, of, of slavery followed, except for the 12 years of Reconstruction, the 100 years of institutionalized violence, that not stopping until 1964. The American people are good. A lot of people just didn't really understand the full picture because politics should be educational. But when you have a politics, even among the Democrats, it speaks to what you think people want rather than what you think people need to hear. People don't know. I would get standing ovations. We're talking about reparations right. in the whitest, uh, whitest places. So I, I think we need to just start speaking from our hearts the truth and assuming that people are as smart as we are. Well, I, I, I thought that was really interesting, too, because in your speech, I remember you talking about how when people are in crisis, when something terrible happens, when you lose a child, when you lose a job, when, when people, we become very intelligent, right? Like that's, that's the mm-hmm. moment when people will focus the most and they're at the height of their powers when they're in crisis, and that's exactly the moment when you can't talk down to people. And yet they, what they've been offered is a politics that just says Trump is bad and we're the better choice and that's it. You have to vote for us. But that's not enough for people, right? When, when they're in crisis, they need something else. They need, they need some kind of road to you know, spiritual f- fulfillment or something. Uh, is, is that part of what you're talking about? It's, this, it's a condescension and, and a misread of... Mm-hmm. I think the um, Democrats have the more egalitarian policies, but an oddly more elitist relationship to its own constituency. That's a, yeah. right. Republicans are the opposite. They have the elitist yeah. policies, but oddly enough, a more egalitarian relationship to its own constituency. I actually think if I was a Republican, I wouldn't have been chewed up and spit out mm-hmm. uh, well, right. uh, by Tom Perez. But see, right. Tom Perez actually said to me, uh, we couldn't have lowered the bar anymore for you. And you know how... <laughs> what? He oh, said that? Wrong, um, the bar wasn't too low for me. It was too high for you. Yeah. Wow. This was about the debate? Yeah, at the end when, uh, uh, when I, you know, when he made his perfunctory phone call uh, to me at the end. And I, I called him on the well-strategized smear. But, you know, one person's issues are not what matter here. Yeah. It's a larger picture. Right. Uh, that matters here. And yes, I think that the uh, that Tom Perez is basically Nancy, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz 2.0. Uh, we know the effects that this had in 2016. And uh, I've been seeing the slow motion car crash because I was part of it. But now, as I said, that can't be used as an excuse right now. What's most important is that... Um, is that Donald Trump be denied a second term. This is a fascist at the door. And the morning after the election, we'll have a whole lot to talk about. I was just talking to a friend who was kind of, who told me that he secretly, he's, he's very left. And he said he secretly wanted Trump to win because he thought the Democrats needed to be, for the long term, 
Like, but short term, even the next cycle, he thought they had to be taught a lesson about not taking, you know, not, not uh, spitting on the left. And he said that what's happening now has actually kind of changed his mind on that. You know, it's interesting. You're saying something very interesting because that argument to me obviously uh, makes no sense because it's not like they learned anything from Hillary and Bernie in 2016. That's number one. But I think that right now there are a lot of people like your friend. And I know that if you even go close to scolding people and say, no, you have to vote for Trump. uh, I mean, vote for the Democrat. Whoa, whoa. So I have said to people, I I understand what you're saying. And I hope that, you know, I hope that you will. uh, My hope, of course, is that you will rethink that before November. And I think a lot of people are going through what your friend is going through. That's my hope. Yeah. No, voter shaming is not effective. No, 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 no. Regardless no. of what you think of, of uh-huh. how they should vote. Yeah. Well, I think most of the people doing the shaming have no idea. It goes back to the silos. No idea right. how many millions of people felt that Bernie was their only hope for health care, their only hope that they could get an education. So many tens of millions of Americans have been living with chronic economic tension and anxiety, do not know what would happen if they get sick do not know what would happen if one of their kids gets sick, do not know how to send their kids to college, and do not know how they will get out from under these college loans. And they thought maybe they had a hope and they worked for it and they worked for it within the system. And they saw what happened to Bernie and they saw what happened to me. And if they have to go through a period of processing this, right. they have every right to do so. Last question I had for, for me is just about a follow up on the, the media question. Um, with campaign journalism, um, there, especially when we're dealing with Democratic candidates, I feel like it's less true on the Republican side for some reason. But the campaign press has always seen itself as the inf- as enforcers of <laughs> a kind of orthodoxy, like a, a, a candidate is supposed to look like X, Y, and Z. Typically, male. Typically, has some kind of political experience. You know, usually either in the in the Congress or in the Senate. Um, but they, but they, they act like sort of almost like Heathers, right? They're, they, they, they laugh at people and snicker at people who don't fit into a certain kind of box. Do you, do you think that that was a major factor in what happened to your campaign? And do you think, do you think you would have gotten the same treatment if you were a Republican candidate? I know you sort of answered yeah, that question yeah. already, but, but uh, I, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Andrew Yang wasn't right. a good official. Right. And then right. went through his his uh, went through his his uh, campaign headquarters, putting whipped cream in people's faces, allowing right. them to lift him up. And I love Andrew, but I don't remember his being made uh, a, a mockery of. No, and and but and he was a he, he's a businessman, so they let that. That's a little bit right. more acceptable. But you know what? I want, and he's me. a man. He's a man. Right. right. Yes. I'm a businesswoman. Mm-hmm. Right. Of course. Right. Yeah. But. So but to be fair, you, I mean, but, but you come off as a, and you are this, like you, um, I mean this in a good way. Yang is basically just a businessman. You are someone who's articulated so much like political, spiritual, moral philosophy, which I, I think is also, yeah, no, which I think is also related. I mean, I think, yeah. Even in terms of the spiritual and religious, Al Sharpton, man for president, Jesse Jackson, man for president. No, I think the gender thing is real. I'm just saying it's also but I also think what's real is how many journalists are not journalists. Right. Look who I'm talking to. You guys uphold journalistic standards. It is unbelievable that somebody's anonymous tweet will be used as a source today. Mm-hmm. Fact checking doesn't even exist. 
that, right. that people are so interested in their clicks, click rate that they will say anything, that people have millions of followers who have no journalistic ex, uh, even experience. They talk about my lack of experience. And, and then you have the issue of people even who did go to journalism school, did they not take any ethics classes? Right. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, but once again, we started this conversation with intersectionality. It's all about the ethical corruption of our country. And I think the hope lies in the fact that so many of us are sickened by it. If you eat enough junk food, you begin to actually wish for some asparagus. Hmm. And I think that things have gone so far in this country. I, I see an awakening possible, an awakening happening, and we just have to feed it every single day in every, every way possible. You know, this country has pushed back forces of tyranny and oppression before. We had had slavery, and then there was the abolitionist movement. We had the institutionalized oppression of women, and then we had the women's suffrage movement. We had institutionalized white supremacy and segregation, and then we had the civil rights movement. We're not going through anything that our ancestors haven't gone through, and it's simply our turn. Let's just not be the first generation to wimp out on doing what it'll take to push stuff like that back to where it belongs. You are someone, I think people didn't realize um, for many reasons, what a kind of intellectual history you have, uh, a background you have. And I actually, I heard you on talking to Virgil, Chapo uh, Trap House's Virgil. Uh, it was an amazing interview and, and you were talking about... I was reading Karl Marx before you were born. I yeah, right, right. And I, yeah, and I, it was amazing to hear you actually talk about your analysis. It was like, oh, wow, Marion Williamson does Marx. Um, I'm Mar I, you know. I was young once. Yeah. So, um, so I'll, I'll ask this. I guess what policies of yours would, would be related to what's happening now with the protests, and what would your reparations um, policy look like? Would there be any truth and reconciliation associated commissions associated with it? Or in terms of my policies, my reparations policy, and I started talking about reparations in in the late '90s. My reparations policy holds the. This is the plan that I've submitted. Uh, I have have said 500 billion, but there are people who argue it should be a lot more. Many argue it should be a lot less. I have felt that around 500 billion could actually polit be politically feasible, but the number to me is not what's most important now. My plan was for a, uh, a number, whether it's 500 billion or what, to be dispersed over 20 years, and that it, there would be a reparations council of black leaders from various areas, academia, culture, politics, etc., and that... Um, Reparations carries a moral authority that race-based policies does not carry. And so I like the idea of reparations because if I owe you money, I don't get to tell you how to spend it. If I messed with you, I don't get to determine how to fix it. That was my reparations plan. In addition to that, one of the things I talked quite a bit about on my uh, campaign was a Department of Children and Youth. We have tens of millions of American children living in chronic trauma, and yes, many of them come from disadvantaged neighborhoods, uh, people of color, et cetera, disproportionately. And these children, we have uh, 13 million, even before the pandemic, 
We have 13 million children who go to, go to school hungry every day in the richest country in the world. We have, and I, uh, this is everywhere. I've heard it in Iowa. I heard it in New Hampshire. There are, it is a common thing in American public schools to have, are you ready for this? Trauma rooms. And where do you think these kids are going to be in 20 years? So a lot of things when they talk about even, even something like police brutality, we always have to remember to go deeper than the symptom. We have to talk about the cause and everything starts when children are young. You know that. I don't know if you have children, Katie, but Matt, it's all happening right now. Everything's mm -hmm. happening in those first eight years, really in those first five years. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And so the idea to me, the, the whole issue of any kind of societal healing has to begin with the recognition, what could be more immoral than the fact that our educate, public educational system is based primarily on property taxes, which right. means right there that if you were, your parents didn't have much money, you will not get as good, a, as good an education. Every public school in America should be a palace of culture, learning, and the arts. So those were very connected to me. And the other one uh, that I feel strongly about still, and we will must continue the conversation, has to do with the Department of Peace. You can't just treat sickness, you have to cultivate health. We can't just have health care. We have to ask, why are Americans so sick? Why do we have so much more diabetes, so much more, uh, chronic obesity, so much heart disease? Once again, why do you think so many more black people are dying of COVID? Because there is more heart disease, more obesity, more diabetes. Why is that? Because of poverty, because of food deserts, et cetera. Once again, the whole intersectionality. We have um, a, a situation where we'll have a $738 billion um, National Defense Authorization Act, which came from the House, the Democratic House. Meanwhile, only a $40 billion uh, uh, State Department budget. Uh, Ronan Farrow's book, The War on Peace, uh, goes into how we had done so much over the last few decades to transfer uh, diplomatic authority from the State Department and real diplomats to militarization. And, and military commanders. So we, we were on a very thin, uh, skating on very thin ice when it came to infectious disease, but we are on similarly thin ice when it comes to nuclear power, and we are on similarly thin ice when it comes to environmental power, and obviously in, uh, we were on very thin ice when it, comes to, um, when it comes to criminal justice. So as far as I'm concerned, guys, we're going through a reckoning. We're being rocked to our core but we had to be rocked to our core. And in a way, you know, it's like in the deepest darkness, there's the possibility of, of, of the greatest light. And I, I just want to say thank you to both of you and to those like oh, you who are holding the space for the conversations that matter. Yeah, thank Martin Luther King, remember, said that uh, your life begins to end when you stop talking about things that matter. So, uh, <laughs> right. and Excellent. where can people find your, I just want to make sure people know about your summit, uh, where they oh, can yeah. find you it. Can go to progressivecandidatesummit.com, progressivecandidatesummit.com or to mariamwilliamson.com. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's a good Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much for yeah, coming on. It's so been wonderful and, really uh, and good great. luck. Good luck to you. God bless you. Take care. Thanks. Thanks. Well, that was great. Long anticipated interview, right? Yeah. Yeah, she's yeah. great. And I think people really underestimate how uh, her kind of intellectual prowess and they put her in this spiritual box. No, I, I think this is something with her that has driven me crazy about the way we cover 
politics in this country for a long time is that the the go-to reflex of the political establishment, both in the media and in politics, is this kind of snickering response to anybody who has a non-traditional um, background and they, or who has certain kinds of views that are outside the box. And, you know, they, they pulled it out with people like Dennis Kucinich when he, when he proposed a Department of Peace right. once upon a time. And the same thing with her. Um, I think it was actually, you know, when you actually looked at what or listened to what she was saying, she was actually more serious than uh, a lot of her opponents, and they and they casted it as the opposite. And I think that was unfortunate. Right. Yeah. But great to talk that that she's she's still so involved, and um, it's good, good to finally catch up with her. Just to wrap up, our, we're changing our military strategy. Right. We have we have we're ceasing uh, hostilities against Pod Save America. Oh, yeah, we have to talk about something kind of important, which is that I was looking at our numbers. And um, now, to be fair, we I was looking at our podcast numbers on Apple, whatever, iTunes. And to be fair, we are a we are a hybrid beast because we have our YouTube and we have our podcast. Right now, we used to be neck and neck with Pod Save America. We are not that anymore. We, in fact, are one number behind. We are just behind the Axe Files, which is David Axelrod's podcast. Which uh, doesn't make me feel great personally, but... um... It's it's a bit of a travesty. So I think what we need to do... See, Matt, Matt, I think you wanted to join forces with the Axe to take no. on pod save. No, no, okay, no, 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 the other way. Okay, good. Yeah. I was going to say we can cease hostilities against pod save America because we have to work our way up. We got to get rid of the ax files. Yeah, this is, this is a Molotov Ribbentrop kind of situation yeah, right exactly. now where yeah. we, you know, we're going to make some temporary alliances with anybody. Like I, I don't care who it is. And the, 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 the goal is a total annihilation of the ax files so that we can move, move one up. Uh, also, if you if you're listening to this uh, or what listening to or watching uh, Useful Idiots, and you also uh, consume the Axe Files, you're listening to David Axelrod. You need to cease that behavior right now. Yeah. So yeah, definitely make sure you do that. And also rate and review us, guys. Listen, share, rate, review, leave leave a positive review. We should read some reviews on on here to encourage people. That? <laughs> really? Oh, I'm po- sorry. Oh. <laughs> oh, positive reviews. Oh, positive reviews. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Yes. And then uh, we can, if, if anyone reads bad reviews, which Matt, you can screen because I can't deal with that. Um, right. If anyone leaves negative ones, I mean, which I can't, which you have to screen, we can if, demolish them. Yes. Dominating. That's what we have to do. Otherwise they think you're weak. We're going to go through them like butter. All right. That was great. Uh, great. Th- th- thanks for tuning in. Uh, rate review and we'll see you next week. Great. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.